In England, the Tyne River, famously flowing through the centre of Newcastle on its way to the northeastern coast, has for many centuries been a vein of industry. In the early 19th century, the banks were filled with shipbuilders, rope makers, and flour, grain, textile, and corn mills, creaking and grinding with the constant industrial din. On the eastern outskirts of Newcastle stood Willington Mill, a flour mill built in 1801 with a local reputation. For decades, folks had talked about the old mill house, of how a witch had once lived in an old cottage on the land, and of the spirit of old Geoffrey. The stories eventually seeped out into national publications after a pair of curious locals carried out an overnight vigil which ended in chaos, earning the mill the title of the most haunted house in England. But were the stories anything more than just local rumour and legend? This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark History Season 6, Episode 13. I'm your host, as always, Ben. This week we've got a really great old ghost story that has come from the depths of, like, God knows, I'm not even, I can't even remember where I found it, but quite an obscure old ghost story from the 19th century, which is, which I think is a, is, is a really interesting one. So uh, we'll be getting to that in a second. Before I start, I do just want to say thank you to everyone who got in touch about the Summer and Man to let me know that the, you know, that the, the, the newer updates of the Summer and Man case. Um, if you haven't heard, Professor Derek Abbott, who I spoke to before in the past, has uh, uncovered the name of the Summer and Man through uh, DNA testing. Um, yeah, and a lot, a lot of people sort of sent me the uh, links to various articles, which was great, actually, because I got to read different articles from all websites from all around the world, which was really great. Uh, but yeah, I, I just wanted to sort of let you know um, that obviously I've spoken to Professor Abbott before um, and so I got in touch with him. But yeah, I will be speaking to him again very soon um, to so, to get his take on the update, basically, and, and let us all know, you know, what he'd done um, and how he came came across the name and, you know, what, what DNA testing he did and, and all the rest of it. I do tend to... I've got quite a few questions for him. So yeah... Um, that will be coming soon, just as a little bonus episode, say just a, a little update. Um, so very fortunate that he's a very nice guy, and uh, I spoke to him before, so I've been, you know, in in a good position to to ask him to sort of let us all know about the update. So that will be coming soon. So yeah, thanks very much for for getting in touch and letting me know. Anyway, and so with that said, let's uh, move on to the episode. Let's get started. This is the haunting of Willington Mill. On the outskirts of Newcastle, in the northeast of England, the Willington Gut, a slow-moving river that flows into the River Tyne, sits nestled in a deep valley surrounded by rolling hills known as Willington Quay. In 1801, a series of blocky red brick structures were introduced to the landscape when Joseph Unthank and his family built what would be the northeast's first steam-powered mill. Described by one contemporary account as not exactly picturesque, the factory buildings dominated the landscape, at least until the mid-19th century when the Newcastle and North Shields Railway arrived, passing right by the mill, erecting a vast viaduct that towered over the small hamlet, framing it within its 128 feet tall arches. The mill house itself was a three-storey rectangular building with slanted roof sitting on the left of the mill, with both buildings creating a footprint equal to the warehouse-style building that stood behind them. 
The small grounds around the buildings included several smaller outbuildings, such as a small stable. The little industrial hamlet sat right on the banks of the gut, which alternated with the tides between the gentle flow of water and a muddy trench. From the very outset, the mill was surrounded by unsavoury rumours. One incredibly flimsy piece of local folklore spoke of a house that once stood next to the gut, occupied by a notorious witch, though no actual written evidence exists that backs up the claim outside of a few vague references. Nevertheless, the existence of the rumours cast an ominous reputation upon the mill from the very start of its life, and when Joseph and Margaret Unthank moved into the mill house around 1806 with their five children, it was already amidst of local rumours that the building was haunted. Though the Unthanks lived there for 25 more years, and the only documented case of anything strange happening was when Joseph thought that he heard the sound of a mangle one night. In 1831, the Unthanks moved out of Willington Quay, and the Proctor family moved in. Joseph Proctor was a well-educated and well-respected member of the local community. An elder in the Society of Friends, the Protestant Christian group that would later be known as Quakers, he was devoutly religious and active in several religious-based movements throughout the north of England, including the Peace Society and the Anti-Slavery Society, as well as practising and promoting the emerging movement of teetotalism. He was well known throughout the area and managed to maintain a good reputation throughout his life, though, perhaps unsurprisingly, it was his experiences in the Willington Mill that would gain him the most renown. He lived in the mill house with his wife, Elizabeth, who he had married earlier that year. The pair settled down and had their first child a couple of years after, but the house was far from a newlyweds ideal. By the end of the decade, the reputation of the mill as a haunted house had spread out to the surrounding towns, becoming an area of special interest for many, and would very soon make waves nationally, eventually gaining the title in several publications of the most haunted house in England. Probably the most famous account of a haunting that came from the mill and the account that launched the mill out of local oral folklore and into the national spotlight was that of an overnight investigation undertaken by a doctor and a chemist, both hailing from towns just outside Newcastle. Dr Edward Drury works in a small surgery in Sunderland about 15 miles to the southeast of Newcastle, just south over the River Tyne from Willington Mill. A self-confessed sceptic, he was nevertheless intrigued by all the rumours that were circulating of Willington Mill, and after hearing a detailed account of the goings-on at the mill from a mutual friend of himself and of the proctors, he wasted no time in trying to set up an overnight vigil in order to appease his curiosity. On the 17th of June, 1840, he wrote to Joseph Proctor, requesting to stay at the mill. Sir, having heard from indisputable authority, v. that of my excellent friend, Mr Davison of Low Willington, farmer, that you and your family are disturbed by most unaccountable noises at night. I beg leave to tell you that I have read attentively Wesley's account of such things, but with I must confess no great belief. But an account of this report coming from one of your sect, which I admire for candour and simplicity, my curiosity is excited to a high pitch, which I could fain satisfy. My desire is to remain alone in the house all night, with no companion but my own watchdog, in which, as far as courage and fidelity are concerned, I place much more reliance than upon any three young gentlemen I know of, and it is also my hope that, if I have a fair trial, I shall be enabled to unravel this mystery. Joseph Proctor replied a few days later, confirming that he would be happy to host the doctor overnight. However, he did warn him that particular disturbances are far from frequent at present. 
The best chance he would have at satisfying his curiosity, he recommended, was to sit alone up on the third floor until daylight. He also mentioned to the doctor that he would be away in Carlisle with his family during the vigil, so the house would be completely empty, except from a single servant who would be on the premises and would give him access to the house. Drury was thrilled and began assembling the tools he would need to get him through the night, including a pair of pistols with which he intended to use to intimidate the servant in the event he felt there was any trickery afoot, though thankfully he kept them unloaded. When the 3rd of July rolled round, he packed everything up and prepared himself to leave for Willington, when he met with Thomas Hudson, a chemist, surgeon-dentist and amateur hypnotist from South Shields, just north of Sunderland. Hudson had caught wind of Drury's plan to spend the night at the old mill and had decided to join him on something of a whim after his boss had told him of the planned vigil and suggested that he go along to make sure that Drury didn't return with some cock-and-ball story. Happy to get off of work early, he left the chemists and made his way across the Tyne on foot. When the pair arrived at the mill, Drury was presented with a second surprise when Joseph Proctor greeted them at the door. He had needed to come back from Willington for business, he told Drury, though he had left the rest of the family still in Carlisle, so the house would still be relatively empty. It was 8pm and the evening sun was beginning to set over the hillside surrounding the mill, ducking through the great arches of the vast railway viaduct that had been built to pass by the mill earlier that year. It was described by Hudson as a beautiful summer's evening as quietude reigned everywhere. Joseph invited Drury and Hudson to dinner and the group spent a good couple of hours around the dining table, becoming better acquainted with one another, whilst Joseph brought them up to speed with all the peculiar happenings he and others had experienced in the house. After dinner, Joseph and his servant walked Drury and Hudson through the house, giving them a guided tour and allowing them to see for themselves that no trickery was at hand, nor possible. At 10pm, they ended their tour on the third floor where the two men were left with only a pair of chairs in which they were to wait out the night. I sat down on the third story landing, fully expecting to account for any noises I might hear in a philosophical manner. This was about 11 o'clock p.m. About 10 minutes to 12, we both heard a noise, as if a number of people was pattering with their bare feet upon the floor, and yet so singular was the noise that I could not minutely determine from whence it proceeded. A few minutes afterwards, we heard a noise as if someone was knocking with his knuckles among our feet. This was immediately followed by a hollow cough from the very room from which the apparition proceeded. The only noise after this was as if a person was rustling against the wall coming up the stairs. At quarter to one, I told my friend that feeling a little cold, I would like to go to bed as we might hear noises equally well there. He replied that he would not go to bed till daylight. I took up a note, which I had accidentally dropped, and began to read it, after which I took out my watch to ascertain the time, and found that it wanted ten minutes to one. In taking my eyes from the watch, they became riveted upon a closet door, which I distinctly saw open, and also saw the figure of a female, attired in greyish garments, with the head inclined downwards, and one hand pressed upon the chest as if in pain, and the other, V, the right hand, extended towards the floor, with the index finger pointing downwards. It advanced with an apparently cautious step across the floor towards me. Immediately as it approached, my friend, who was slumbering, its right hand was extended towards him. I then rushed at it, giving at the time, as Mr Proctor states, a most awful yell. But instead of grasping it, I fell upon my friend, and I recollected nothing distinctly for nearly three hours afterwards. 
I have since learnt that I was carried downstairs in an agony of fear and terror. A letter from Joseph Proctor to his wife also mentioned Drury's experience in the house, and when he found him shortly after this experience, he described Drury as having been in a state of extreme nervous excitement and accompanied with much coldness and faintness. He continued in a shocking state of tremor for some hours, though not irrational. He had a ghastly look and startled at the smallest sound. Apparitions walking through the mill had been seen before and after Edward Drury's account. On one occasion, the mill foreman's wife saw an apparition of a bare-headed man in a flowing robe on the second floor, which she pointed out to the people she was with. Her husband, their daughter and a young woman, and a friend of the Proctor family all turned to witness the vision, gliding three feet off the ground, semi-transparent and as bright as a star. The apparitions were, it seemed, reasonably well known throughout the area, and the locals referred to two separate but repeating visions. The male apparition was known as Old Geoffrey, whilst the female Grey Lady was said to have had a horrifying appearance on account of the fact that she had no eyes, which fairly well explains the fear felt by Drury. Many years later, Hudson wrote his own account of the night spent investigating the mill with Drury, though his account was decidedly more sceptical. He waited over 40 years to talk about the night publicly, citing the death of Joseph Proctor in 1975 and the mill closing down shortly after, which saw it repurposed under new ownership as reasons to finally break his silence. His story was eventually published in the Newcastle Weekly Chronicle on the 20th of December 1884 and later republished in the Monthly Chronicle of North Country Lore and Legend. The clock struck the ghostly hour of twelve without a single incident having occurred worthy of a word of comment. Fifteen minutes afterwards, however, a most unearthly hollow sound broke upon our ears. Knowing that coming events often cast their shadows before, we awaited breathlessly in the anticipation that these sounds might be the prelude to sights. But we awaited in vain. Later on, sounds came in a sort of rumbling and unequal fashion, such as might have been caused by a wagon wheels travelling over the skeleton of the Willington Bridge, then in course of construction. Anon my friend was a little excited by a vibrating noise which he said sounded like the fluttering of an angel's wing. My answer was that it was more likely to be the echo of a steamer's paddle wheels on the adjoining river. Then there came another awfully perplexing sound, as if something was trying to squeeze itself through the floor at our feet. This was simple, as a matter of fact, yet it produced in us a great degree of nervous uneasiness. Not, however, to an alarming extent, as we knew that the house was built upon piles, and was, therefore, more sensitive to sounds than other buildings resting on more substantial foundations. This thought calmed our feelings. About a quarter to one, one of the most unaccountable disturbance we had yet heard occurred in one of the rooms close by, the room to my right hand. It was as if someone was really there, walking on his or her bare feet and approaching us, but nothing met our vision. The pair then proceeded to have something of a falling out, as when Drury suggested that they retire to bed to listen to the sounds and Hudson suggested he would keep watch, Drury seemed to take offence and refused to talk to Hudson for the following hour. Hudson, meanwhile, pulled out a cigar and suggested using Drury's hat as a spittoon, leading Drury to tell him that the occasion was far too serious for levity or laughter. Eventually, Hudson nodded off, just as Drury had written in his account. However, here, Hudson's account is a little less fantastic. 
I naturally became exceedingly drowsy, yet I was awake enough for any emergency. I saw my friend reading a note which he had taken from his waistcoat pocket, and I closed my eyes for a few seconds only. I was quickly startled, however, by a hideous yell from Drury, who sprang up with his hair standing on end, the picture of horror. He fainted and fell into my arms, like a lifeless piece of humanity. His horrible shouts made me shout in sympathy, and I instantly laid him down and went into the room from whence the last sound was heard, but nothing was there, and the window had not been opened. So loud was his scream that two or three neighbours were awakened by it, so they afterwards told me. Mr Proctor and the housekeeper came quickly to our assistance and found the young doctor trembling in acute mental agony. Indeed, he was so much excited that he wanted to jump out of the window. Coffee was kindly given to us and we shortly afterwards left for North Shields. In his conclusion of the piece, Hudson uses a flowery Macbeth reference to suggest that the apparition was merely a figment of Drury's imagination. Whether it was or was not a spirit in form will remain a mystery to some, a fact to a few, and simply a mental delusion to many. The latter will be the more prevalent opinion in this age of materialism when the question is asked, how can there be a shadow without substance, or mind without matter, except in our dreaming eyes and foolish fancies? No matter the tone of Hudson's account, and it is absolutely written with a certain amount of tongue pressed firmly in cheek, he does back up several of Drury's claims, and he also admits to having fallen asleep when Drury saw the apparition of the ghostly lady. Furthermore, whatever Drury saw, real or imagined, did seem to have a considerable effect upon him, enough for him to faint and for Joseph Proctor to visit him in the days following the vigil in order to check on his well-being. Once Drury's account of his time in the mill was published, far wider attention was drawn upon the mill, and the Proctors soon found themselves being contacted and visited by people from across Britain. Several authors and antiquarians were keen to visit the premises and confirm the stories for themselves, and a fair few wrote of the mill in their own books documenting local, oral folklore and history. Historian, author and spiritualist William Howitt visited the mill in the hopes of spending the night, much like Drury had, However, when he visited, he found the Proctors to have been out of town, visiting family in Carlisle. Instead, he satisfied himself by talking to the locals about the mill and gathered several stories that backed up the narrative already cast out by Drury. In one, he spoke with the brother of Elizabeth Proctor, who approached his stay at the house with an element of stoic bravado, claiming that if he had heard any noises during the night, he would speak in demand of the invisible actor who he was and why he came thither. His experience, however, soon put an end to that bravery. As he lay in bed one night, he heard a heavy step ascend the stairs toward his room and someone striking, as it were, with a thick stick on the banisters as he went along. It came to his door and he essayed to call, but his voice died in his throat. He then sprang from his bed and, opening the door, found no one there, but now heard the same heavy steps, deliberately descending, though invisible, the steps before his face and accompanying the descent with the same loud blows on the banisters. He also spoke with the mill's foreman, Thomas Mann, and his wife, who further expanded on their own sighting by telling the story of an apparition seen by their two visitors, one of which witnessed the figure of the grey lady in a window alongside them. The following night, as they happened to awake, and the chamber was light enough, for it was summer, to see everything in it, they both saw a female figure of a misty substance and bluish-grey hue come out of the wall at the bed's head 
and through the headboard in a horizontal position and lean over them. They saw it most distinctly. They saw it as a female figure come out of and again pass into the wall. Their terror became intense and one of the sisters from that night refused to sleep any more in the house but took refuge in the house of the foreman during her stay, the other shifting her quarters to another part of the house. After this flurry of interest in the early 1840s, news of the mill fell relatively quiet for several decades. It wasn't that the hauntings had suddenly come to an abrupt end, nor that the local reputation had improved any, it just simply slipped into obscurity, only gaining vague off-hand mentions in specialist spiritualist magazines from time to time. It would take Joseph's death to stir things up again, when Edmund uncovered his father's notes on the hauntings whilst clearing through his paperwork, which documented the goings-on in the house, with a new detail. In 1892, the Journal for the Society of Psychical Research published an account documenting the haunting of the mill that they titled Joseph Proctor's Diary. In truth, it was less of a diary and more a collection of loosely dated documents compiled and annotated by Joseph's son, Edmund, who had uncovered them shortly after his father's death. The accounts started in January of 1835 and continued with sporadic entries until 1841. Edmund told the Society for Psychical Research that he had discovered the collection of papers after his father's death but waited so long to publish them both because his mother had been against it and because he thought that it appeared to be missing a second half which he had been trying to track down. Eventually failing to do so, he resigned to publishing it half complete more than a decade after his mother's death. The first diary entry recalled a series of noises heard nightly by the nursemaid while she watched over the children in the nursery on the second floor. She declared that she distinctly heard a dull, heavy tread on the boarded floor of the unoccupied room above, commonly pacing backwards and forwards and, on coming over the window, giving the floor such a shake as to cause the window of the nursery to rattle violently in its frame. This disturbance generally lasted ten minutes at a time, and though she did not heed it at first, yet she was now persuaded it was supernatural, and it quite overset her. The latter was indeed evident from the agitation that she manifested. The nursemaid would call the kitchen girl upstairs to investigate the room above on the third floor, where the noises seemed to originate from, but since they never found anything that could have made the noises, her stories were never taken seriously, despite the fact that the kitchen girl would report the nursemaid as always trembling and looking very pale. Eventually, the rest of the members of the house would all hear the same disturbances, as well as sounds that resembled a man walking in heavy boots across the floor above, leaving them little choice but to believe her. Entry into the room was limited, due to the fact that the fireplace was covered over and closed up, and that the window likewise was bricked up. Rats were suggested, but none had ever been seen elsewhere in the house, and it was also noted that the sound produced was far heavier than that which could be made by household pests. Interestingly, the sounds were said to occur mainly during the day and getting more frequent during the evening, but almost never at night, when the mill would have been at its quietest. The second entry spans a period of 24 days, from January the 25th to February the 18th, 1835, and again focuses on several strange sounds heard throughout the house and grounds. Soon, after retiring to bed before going to sleep, my wife and I both heard ten or twelve obtuse deadened beats as of a mallet on a block of wood, apparently within two feet of the bed curtain, on one side by the crib in which the child was laid. 
The next night, before undressing, I had hushed the child asleep in his crib and while leaning over it with one hand laid upon it and listening to some indistinct sounds overhead, which had just ceased, I heard a tap on the cradle leg as with a piece of steel and distinctly felt the vibration of the wood in my hand from the blow. He also mentions for the first time sounds heard outside of the house with sound like someone stepping down the gravel walk being heard despite no one being outside. This is also followed by an undated entry which describes several witness accounts of a ghostly apparition. One of their neighbours reportedly saw a transparent white female figure standing in the window of Joseph Proctor's bedroom on the second floor of the house. The mill's foreman, Thomas Mann and his wife, saw a similar figure in the same window hovering three feet from the floor though they described it as very luminous and likewise transparent and had the appearance of a priest in white surplus. The pair called out to some visitors who were staying with them, relatives of the Proctors, who stood with them for further ten minutes as they watched the figure slowly fade away to darkness. Visitors to the mill seem to experience strange phenomena fairly frequently, and another account is given of the experiences of Joseph Proctor's sister-in-law, Jane Carr, who was described as a woman with strong nerve and very cheerful temper. A little before 12 o'clock at night, Jane Carr and her bedfellow were disturbed by a noise similar to the winding up of a clock, apparently on the stairs where the clock stands, which continued for the space of ten minutes. When that ceased, footsteps were heard in the room above, which is unoccupied, for perhaps a quarter of an hour. Whilst this was going on, the bed was felt to shake, and Jane Carr distinctly heard the sound like a sack falling on the floor above. On the third of the first month, about twelve o'clock at night, Jane Carr, being quite awake, was disturbed by a noise similar to a person knocking quickly and strongly five times on a piece of board in the room. When that ceased, she distinctly heard the sound of a footstep, close by the side of her bed. On the twenty-seventh, no one slept on the third story. About eleven o'clock, Jane C. and the nursemaid heard in the room above the sound of some person with strong shoes, sometimes walking, sometimes running backwards and forwards, moving chairs and clashing down box lids, and sometimes thumping as with a fist. These sounds also moved onto their stairhead. About midnight, Jane Carr felt the bed raised up under one side, as if to turn her over, giving two lifts. Nurse Pollard, in another room on the same floor, heard a noise which roused her as she was going to sleep. Something then pressed against the high part of the curtain and came down onto her arm, which was weighed down with the same force. There were several more mentions of their beds raising up at their own accord from several members of the household, which they described as, as if a man were underneath pushing it up with his back. All of this led Jane to refuse to sleep alone in the house, and she would eventually request the cook to sleep in the same bed as her whenever she stayed. She continued to experience strange phenomena in the house, and both Jane and Mary both told a story of a particular night when they heard footsteps in the bedroom walk over to the bedside cabinet, followed by the sounds of something snuffing out their candle and rustling the curtains that fell heavily around the bed. As the footsteps approached, Mary said a dark shadow could be seen distinctly on the curtain, though Jane was unable to corroborate this part of the story, as, despite her strong nerve, she had pulled the bed covers over her head. She did go on to see an apparition for herself, however, 
which she described in an interview with Eleanor Sedgwick of the Society for Psychical Research, wife of Professor Henry Sedgwick, and prominent sceptic of spiritual mediumship. She described it as the figure of a woman in a grey mantle which came through the wall of her room from the next. There was a light in the room. Her sister who was with her was asleep. The feet of the figure appeared to be about three feet from the floor. It came close up to the bed. There was then quite a large gap in documents that resume in 1841. According to Joseph, the phenomena seems to have abated in the house for the better part of two years, with only intermittent disturbances. But by the summer of 1841, they were threatening to resume once again. In June, the maids told Joseph that they'd been unable to sleep until 2am due to hearing so many noises, including footsteps at the foot of their beds. Some of the stranger testimonies concerning the house contain stories of ghostly animals. Elizabeth's sister Jane saw the apparition of a ghostly white cat walking in the garden, though she described it as larger than a real cat and with a long snout. Edmund Proctor himself recollected a story of having seen a ghostly monkey, though being only two and a half years old at the time, he told his father he had seen a funny cat. The monkey apparently jumped down across the nursery furniture and sprinted across the room disappearing into the skirting under a bed in the neighbouring room. When the children checked to see if they could find it, no trace of a monkey was ever found. As it turns out, stories of ghostly animals had been something of a feature throughout the history of the mill, and the figure of an animal about two feet tall was described as early as 1841. This vague vision appeared at the window to the nursery one night, and Elizabeth Proctor had once heard of a dog bark in the kitchen and felt two paws rest heavy on her shoulders though of course no dog was ever seen. At other times, the animals seemed to shapeshift, taking on several different forms, as documented by Mary Young's boyfriend at the time, who saw a cat walking in the garden whilst waiting outside the house to pick her up one evening. It came walking along in close proximity to his feet. Thinking Miss Puss very cheeky, he gave her a kick, but his foot felt nothing, and it quietly continued its march, followed by my father until it suddenly disappeared from his gaze. Still, the ghost was not thought of by him. Returning to the window and looking in the same direction, he again beheld it suddenly come into existence. This time, it came hopping like a rabbit, coming quite as close to his feet as before. He determined to have a good rap at it and took deliberate aim, but as before, his foot went through it and felt nothing. Again, he followed it, and it disappeared at the same spot as its predecessor. The third time, he went to the window, and in a few moments, it made its third appearance. Not like unto a cat or a rabbit, but fully as large as a sheep, and quite luminous. On it came, and my father was fixed to the spot. All muscular power seemed for the moment paralysed. It moved on, disappearing at the same spot as the preceding apparitions. My father declared that if it was possible for hair to stand on end, his did just then. Thinking for once that he had seen sufficient, he went home, keeping the knowledge of the scene to himself. Curiously, and somewhat frustratingly, the diaries end quite abruptly. Perhaps even more frustratingly, the scant entries that were published had seemingly gone through a process of self-censorship by Joseph Proctor, who wrote that several circumstances tending to corroborate the presence of good or evil spirits manifesting their presence were withheld from his first entry, though he gives no reason as to why. Furthermore, detailed reports of voices heard by the children of the house were also referred to, but omitted, again with no clear reason as to why. 
Edmund claimed that a second half of the document had been lost over time and he had never been able to find it. And so we were left in the end with a document that asked far more questions than it ever answered. For all of its fantastic descriptions of various paranormal activity, the diary was not actually the first time that the case of Willington Mill had been brought to the attention of the society. Two years before the diary was published, the physics researcher Eleanor Sidgwick, one of the leading members of the Society for Psychical Research, was busy investigating reports of a spirit medium known simply as Jane. Eleanor had earlier married Henry Sidgwick, one of the founding members of the society, and was working as principal of Newnham College in the University of Cambridge, but on the side, she had a particular interest in working with and often debunking spiritualist mediums. Jane had been a peculiar subject in her latest research into clairvoyance, who, whilst hypnotised and in a state of heavy relaxation, seemed to carry out some form of remote viewing, a phenomenon that was at the time particularly unusual. Whilst in a hypnotic state, Jane could be guided through her visions and would describe her surroundings in detail, speaking in a childish manner and referring to herself as Wee's girl. Understandably, this talent was not something that Jane had promoted, and thus her surname was never noted, nor any other details, aside from the fact that she was married to a coal miner and lived in Durham, 20 miles south of Newcastle. She had discovered her unique talent quite by accident around 1845, after undergoing hypnosis as part of a treatment for the sake of her health, as she was permanently bedridden. Apparently, she had done her best to keep her mediumship a secret to her neighbours and had never charged for a sitting, through fear of being taken for a witch. Consequently, Eleanor Sidgwick never actually met with Jane herself, but she did present a series of notes that had been taken by family members during a series of experiments that they had carried out. One particular experiment of interest happened in 1853 when, during one of her sessions under the guidance of a doctor known only as Dr F, she stumbled upon Willington Mill. She described the noise of the machinery, the flower dust falling like snow, the miller in white standing by a poke and was proceeding in her account of the interior of the building when I stopped her and told her to leave the mill and enter the house near it. Is it the small house? she asked. I told her no, it was the larger house that I desired her to look into. After correctly identifying the mill as a steam mill, Jane proceeded into the house. As soon as her vision took her inside, however, her demeanour changed. She became excited and began rapidly asking questions, wondering why the gentleman's owner had left such a pretty house, before she concluded that there was something very strange about this house. Can we not tell we what it is that is so strange here? Can we not tell we why this gentleman went away? Oh yes, it's something about a lady. Can it be this gentleman's wife who died here and thus caused him to leave it? All these questions she asked rapidly and in an excited manner, very different from her ordinary calm bearing when in the mesmeric state. At last she said in a low tone, Now we see it was not this gentleman's wife, for she's alive. It was a vision that frightened him away. That lady was only a vision. Convinced that this vision was an angel of darkness, Jane continued trying to track down the mystery of the lady, describing Joseph Proctor in detail, including the manner of his speech. Two days later, she revisited the house, this time describing the vision of the lady in more detail. It has a face, but not like Wee's face. It is very white, but she moves about so quick. She has eyes, but no sight in them. She is like a shadow. 
She then took the group down into the cellar of the house, where she said there must be something concealed, ominously stating that if there was an examination of the cellar, something will be found there. The mischief is in the cellar, she repeated. Tell the gentleman to look there. Her attention then turned back to the lady, who she said was just like the devil. Six days later, she once more returned to Willington Mill in another session. This time, however, she became interested in the second vision of a man. He has no brains in his head. He looks very fierce. His eyes flash like a tomcat's, like a tiger's. He has a white dress on, like a surplus. Oh, how angry he is. He is so indignant at being disturbed. He does not want the gentleman to find out where he is there for. It is the man who makes the noises in the house. He goes stamping about. We did not like the woman, but the man is far worse. Oh, how angry he is. The man, she said, was digging in the cellar. It was all a fascinating backstory. She appeared to describe the mill reasonably well, and Joseph Proctor even better, and seemed to be describing the ghostly apparitions of both the grey lady and of old Geoffrey. But there was a problem with her visions. Willington Mill did not have a cellar. In fact, it was strangely well documented that the house did not have a cellar, and several of the publications on the haunting had specifically pointed out this fact. Regardless, in Stead's Real Ghost Stories, published in 1897, the author suggests that there were rumours around the local area that Joseph Proctor had attempted to excavate under the house, uncovering a slab of stone, but refused to remove it through fear of destroying the stability of the house. Though he does acknowledge that Joseph Proctor denied the truth of these stories outright. The Proctor family eventually left the mill in 1847, in part due to the unexplained noises that had grown to be so intolerable that, combined with a growing fear for their children's safety, when provided with an opportunity to move, it was an easy decision to make. In the early days of the move, a certain dread hung over Joseph Proctor, who feared that whatever the presence in the house was would follow them to their new dwelling. Over time, with no reappearance of the strange noises occurring, he was slowly able to relax and begin to forget their days in the mill. The foreman, Thomas Mann, and chief clerk of the mill both moved their own families into the old house after they partitioned it into two households. The pair of families went on to live in the house for 20 years until they left in 1867 and the house fell empty. Very few unusual occurrences were known to have erupted throughout their occupancy, though both families are said to have had stories of witnessing an apparition. All of them were reticent to provide any further details of their stories and of their time at the mill. Whilst it stood empty, several families occupied it temporarily after a fire had burnt down another local mill. Throughout their occupation, they were all much troubled, so much, in fact, that one of the families was said to have left. Joseph Proctor gives no names in his diary, though there were at least two local mills that burnt down in 1867, so at least that part of the story could well have been true. During this same period, Edmund, who seemed to have taken a particular interest in the phenomena he had experienced as a child living in the house, visited the mill with a small group of spiritualists who attempted to hold a seance on the premises. His account is shallow and incredibly vague, saying that it was not without incidents, but then choosing not to go into any detail on what occurred. However, ultimately, it was something of a flop and it transpired to be futile as to be establishing any communication with the alleged spirit or spirits supposed to haunt or to have formerly haunted the premises. The mill was placed up for sale in 1866 and eventually sold to guano merchants 
and all stories of supernatural phenomena fell by the wayside. Though rumours continued to leak out of the walls here and there, no more documented testimonies emerged, and the buildings slowly fell into disrepair, with many of the outbuildings being pulled down completely. When the house was eventually turned into tenements, offered up rent-free at first due to the house's local renown as being haunted, none of the occupants ever reported anything untoward happening, even after Edmund attempted to interview them on the matter. When looking for explanations of what happened during the hauntings of Willerton Mill, of all the different phenomena, the easiest to explain away as natural occurrences are the various noises heard throughout the grounds, especially given the fact that the mill routinely ran all throughout the day and the night. Aside from the mill itself, an early 19th century house, at mercy to the changeable northern weather, surrounded by industrial machinery, does seem to suggest that the building itself is an obvious answer to much of what was heard. However, in Joseph Proctor's diaries, he routinely refers to the natural sounds of the environment in and around the mill that he was intimately familiar with, and he clearly distinguishes between them and the noises he viewed as more unexplainable. Similar observations are made in the accounts of apparitions and the state and visibility of the moon or other natural phenomena which are often described in an effort to differentiate between what was seen and what could have been a trick of nature. At one point, Joseph apparently had large parts of the floor pulled up in order to check for anything beneath the floorboards that could have been making the sounds, but he found nothing. There are, however, much bigger problems with the story of Wellington Mill, quite aside from the nature of the various phenomena. The story of the clairvoyant, Jane, lends a fascinating aside, but sadly seems all too easy to write off if we're to believe the numerous sources that point out that the mill never had a cellar. There is no documented evidence of any excavation at the site, no reports of a cellar even after the millhouse was torn down, and given that Joseph was quite active in confirming and denying rumours in writing, and the only source of this particular rumour states clearly that he believes Joseph to have denied the story, it all seems likely to be nothing more than a false rumour. If that is the case, it of course knocks down James' visions entirely. However, it does remain interesting that she was able to describe so much of the scenery as well as so many details concerning the characters and visions attributed to the story, but it's also important to remember that she lived reasonably close to the mill herself, and though she was bedridden, it's not too much of a stretch to believe that she would have come across the stories of the mill, such was the strength of the local reputation. In the July edition of 1863 of the monthly periodical Spiritual Magazine, William Howitt wrote an article warning against celebrating haunted house stories and in it, he mentioned the supposed witch house built on the site of the Willington Mill. There are said to be evidences of the spirits haunting Willington Mill, having done so to an older house on the same spot for 200 years, and a clairvoyant from a distance, wholly unacquainted with the facts of the case. Mr Proctor says, being asked to go in a trance to this mill a few years ago, not only accurately described the two spirits frequently seen there, but said they were gone down so deep into the earth, and were in so fearful a condition that she was afraid to approach them, and in great agony entreated those about her to awake her. The history of haunting presents numbers of such cases. This story seems to be referencing the clairvoyant Jane, but heavily embellished it to the point of fiction. Furthermore, Joseph Proctor wrote to the magazine concerning the story and requested that they print a correction, stating that he believes no such evidence exists for the story, and that the ground had never before been built on. Torpedoing the local oral folklore does not seem such a strange thing to do if he was simply trying to keep the story to its facts. 
However, the language of the letter leads one to believe that Joseph Proctor was maybe a little more interested in spiritualism than Edmund lets on when he states that his father had an earnest interest in the movement, whilst maintaining that his religion kept it at arm's length. Aside from the fact that he must have been reading the spiritual magazine in order to have known about the mention of Willington in the first place, he calls the writer of the piece the esteemed correspondent and suggests that the only reason he is writing was to make the correction out of fear that the factual inaccuracy might lead the whole piece being discredited. Joseph's relationship with the periodical actually appears to be relatively deep, and it turns out that he'd written to the paper on several occasions, at least twice concerning the truth of the accounts of the Willington Mill. A decade before, in 1853, he wrote a letter to the editor, not only confirming the existence of the phenomena, but also giving his own belief on what they may have been. I have never shrunk from the avowal of undoubting assurance of these appearances, noises, etc., being made by the spirit of some person or persons deceased, notwithstanding that the who and wherefore have not hitherto been ascertained. In reply to the inquiry of the narrative in the work referred to, I may state that the portion of it, from page 125 to page 137, taken from Richardson's Table Book, a local antiquarian publication, was written by the later Dr. Clanny of Sunderland and revised by myself before being printed, and is perfectly true and correct. Five years later, Joseph wrote into the magazine once more, this time to defend himself against remarks made about him and printed in the magazine. It is a satisfaction to me to have the opportunity given me to assure thee that the statement referred to in thy favour of yesterday, as given by a gentleman who has lived at Newcastle, that I had found the disturbances described in Mrs. Crowe's Night Side of Nature to have been a trick practised upon me from interested motives, is entirely void of truth. It seems that from the letters, we can assume both that Joseph Proctor believed the occurrences in the mill to have been paranormal in nature, and that he also had quite a healthy interest in spiritualism. If both of these are true, however, it does raise the question as to why Edmund waited until after his death to publish his father's diaries, as he seems to have been perfectly happy for people to know his beliefs, having written into a national spiritualist periodical on several occasions. In fact, it appears that Joseph wasn't shy about his beliefs at all as he had also written a letter to the author Catherine Crowe, published in her book 1850, to confirm the haunting, within which he states his beliefs in reasonably clear and firm terms. Joseph Proctor takes leave to express his conviction that the unbelief of the educated classes in apparitions of the deceased and kindred phenomena is not grounded on a fair philosophic examination of the facts, which have induced the popular belief of all ages and countries, and that it will be found by succeeding ages to have been nothing better than unreasoning and unreasonable prejudice. There is perhaps one answer that could explain this. At the time of the overnight vigil carried out with Drury and Hudson, one of the conditions laid out by Joseph Proctor was that neither of the men would publish their findings of the night, as he had been having difficulty employing staff at the house and did not want to exacerbate the matter with more ghostly tales. If this were true, though, it seems strange that he would have allowed the vigil in the first place, and why had he been so against publishing his diaries any time after they had moved out of or even sold the mill? There are further problems, too. Why are the documents so sporadic? It's hardly an exhaustive account of all the happenings of the house, and instead it seems to form more of an overview, despite often giving a vague mention to events having taken place outside of the pages and dates that are written. One quite large problem accounts for the missing second half. When it was published in the journal of the Society of Psychical Research, Edmund mentions that he believed there to be a second half, and that they had been at some point completely lost. But how he had come to that conclusion 
is not entirely clear, and there is no mention of further entries in the published section. The main issue, however, and one that could very well tie into the first two, relates to the authenticity of the authorship. Throughout the various entries, the author continually swaps between first and third person pronouns. Edmund made claims that he had found the pages of the diary after his father's death, and then waited until 17 years had passed before publishing them. Edmund, who we have evidence of hanging about with spiritualist circles and attending seances, is it such a stretch to believe that Edmund wrote them entirely himself, or at the very least, heavily fleshed out a few notes that had been jotted down by his father. Edmund's excuse for the delay in publishing was, as mentioned, his mother and father's objections to them being published. Whether his mother died only a few years after his father, so why had he waited so long? Edmund himself, in his amendments to the diary, also fully admits to transcribing the notes, which is a convenient explanation as to why they were all written in the same handwriting. We are then presented with two possibilities. Either that the diary is a complete forgery cooked up by Edmund Proctor, an enthusiastic spiritualist, many, many years after the events were supposed to have happened, or that the diary is in part fleshed out and expanded upon by Edmund. Either way, we are directed towards one final question. How much of the diary is written from the memories of a child who was not even three years old at the time, and how much of it is a complete and utter fabrication, written entirely from the adult Edmund's imagination, some 40 years after the fact? At best, we could perhaps say that perhaps he had written it from his memories of the contemporary oral folklore surrounding the mill, but even then, the accuracy and reliability of the documentation is profoundly damaged. However, even if we accept that this is a possibility, we do know that something must have happened in the mill during the Proctor's family's residency, and possibly even before it. The accounts of Drury and Hudson are quite separate from the diary, and yet Joseph went publicly on record to back their authenticity on multiple occasions. The fact that the mill had such a strong local reputation even before these reports were published, also suggests that this wasn't founded on a few tall tales, but rather a prolonged local history concerning the mill. If we were to discount the diary entirely, we are left with a case that is based upon a great deal of oral folklore that is now completely lost, and that we know to have been started on shaky foundations, and the documented report of Hudson and Drury of a single night in the mill. Although these accounts, by and large, correlate with one another on the events that unfolded, they both come to quite different conclusions. Ultimately, without a copy of the original diary to compare handwriting between that and Edmund's transcription, we are left only with our own faith in the accuracy of what he wrote. Historians have, after all, for hundreds of years, relied on oral history and tradition to fill in many blanks. Our only choice is to question the author's motives, prejudices, and the span of time between the events and the time that they were written up, and then form our own conclusions as to what happened at Willington Mill. As Edmund Proctor concluded at the end of his piece in the Journal for the Society of Psychical Research, let us all be free to make our own romance of the infinite. So that was the story of Willington Mill, quite a lost old ghost story, but quite an interesting old ghost story and, and definitely one that I have quite a bit to say about. So we'll get on to that after these short advert breaks. So yes, the story of Willington Mill, quite a good one. Quite an obscure old lost story, which 
is interesting in that it was a really big story for its time. And then it seemed to have faded away quite quickly and been almost completely lost now. Um, you know, you, you very rarely hear about it, even in, you know, considering it was sort of at one point sort of written of as the most haunted house in England and stuff. You, you expect those to sort of stick around, but it seems to have been sort of forgotten, which is was quite an interesting story. Um, do I think it's real, though? Um, or, you know, do I think any of it has any veracity? It's, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think it's fascinating. Firstly, I think the fact that, you know, the rumours that started with the mill, for example, um, it being a, uh, a, a, you know, an old witch, an old notorious witch that lived there, that's really um, hard to ascertain. I don't think there was a house on the site of the mill. It doesn't seem there are any records at all for a house that was on the very site of the mill. There was a, There are records for a house just down from it, and there are records of who built that house. And I looked up the family name, and there, there, there was that family name in the area. So, so there are some sort of you can sort of vaguely tie that to, to there being a cottage on nearby the site. But I can't find any records of there being a witch that lived there, or you know, like um, you know, even I say it like that, but I can't find any records of any sort of folklore or, or local rumors of there being like you know a supposed witch living there so whether or not that's real or not is 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 impossible to ascertain at this point but there must have been something there to have given it such a poor reputation right from the start there were sort of other rumors as well that um there was a bunch of murders on the site of it whilst it was being built again I, i couldn't find any record of any murders at all but that's not to say there were none, especially um, looking at the papers at that earlier time, basically 1801. The newspapers hadn't quite got to that kind of tabloidy vibe yet. And so they weren't reporting on every single murder that took place. In fact, they, they actually rarely reported on any murders that took place. You'd occasionally get one or two or one or two accidents, but that they didn't report on every murder that took, case, took place. Most of the time, the papers were more interested in... Um, things like the economy or um, like the foreign courts and things like that. So, so, so at 1880, in 1801, they didn't report on every murder. So it's, it's, it's impossible to really tell. It is interesting. There must have been something. There must have been something there because a, a brand new mill shouldn't have a reputation of being haunted unless there's something sort of driving that from the start. So there must have been some sort of like traditional folklore around that area but 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 to say that it's a a, a witch or anything is, is very difficult um it, it seems flimsy to me but but what can we know um that 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 which is a shame um i i personally think that i i'm kind of on the money with edmund uh forging the whole diary i think um i think he absolutely just forged it i think i think that's why he didn't release it until later in his life and after, like long after his parents had died. I, I don't think he can remember anything. He was three years old when he was living in the house. Um, I, I, I don't think he could remember. It. He, he, I think he was up, I think he was seven years old when they moved out. So, you know, he would have had some recollection, I guess, but then writing it 40 years later, mm, I, you know, he, he wouldn't have had any recollection from those houses really or not any clear recollections you wouldn't think. Um, but but almost definitely, I think he he just forged that. If I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, and I'm saying this is the best situation, maybe 
um, Joseph Proctor kept a diary and that's where the dates come from. And maybe he wrote like literally one or two sentences and Edmund fleshed out all the rest. I think that's the best situation that can come out of it. But, you know, who knows? Um, unfortunately, and you know, we need sort of copies of both to be able to to tell really um, so we can sort of like compare handwriting. But I mean, it is a bit, bit too fishy for me that, you know, um, he transcribed them and all the rest and to not expect him to have just written them himself seems to be a bit of a push for me, especially when you know that he, you know, we can put two and two together and see that actually he was very interested in um, spiritualism. You know, I mean, the fact that he, he knew a spiritualist circle enough to hang, be hanging around with them and having seances in the old meal and things like that. He obviously was into spiritualism, but 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 also the fact that he went back to the mill so long after the case means that he was obviously affected by something. So, you know, perhaps he was just affected by the local tales, but he was obviously affected by something from his childhood. So, you know, obviously stuck with him. So it, it can't have been nothing or, or, you know, it's unlikely to have been nothing, you know. So that, that I think is really interesting. Um, the, the Drury and Hudson account is, is brilliant. That that's hilarious. That's the, that's just excellent. Um, and I I find it really interesting that actually Hudson writes his piece quite tongue in cheek and very critical um, of Drury. Uh, the, I think there's that line where he called him a, a pathetic piece of humanity or something, which is just hilarious. But you know he's quite um, he's very critical of Drury. But but I think he still sort of confirms everything that Drury said. So I think despite the fact that he's writing it from this quite sceptical perspective, he he is sort of inadvertently confirming everything. So, you know, he, he even the fact that he says, you know, he closed his eyes for a few seconds. Well, I, you know, you and I both know that sometimes we can be so tired. You close your eyes for a few seconds, that's actually 15 minutes, you know. And he, I think he writes it in quite a sceptical way, but it sort of backs up what Drury wrote, I think. This is quite so. I think that's a really interesting account. I think it's a, a really, it's a really well written, good account of a, a, an old sort of gothic ghost story. I, I really like that. Um, do I think any of this stuff actually happened? I don't know. You know, do I think any of this stuff ever happens? Like you, you know, I'm quite a skeptic, but I do enjoy this as a ghost story, and I think it's excellent. And um, you know, it's an old piece of folklore. I think it's brilliant. Um, and who knows? You know, ultimately, all we've got to go on is like a hundred years of folklore. Um, you know, that, that's it's not evidence in itself, but it's, it's a strong story. One thing I will say is that basically the sources for this are all really old. They're all 19th century except from one, which is a modern book. Uh, that is called The Haunting of Willington Mill. Um, and I think it does have a subtitle which talks about the truth, blah, 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 which is where we'll get into that, by Hallowell, uh, Michael J. Hallowell and Darren W. Ritson. Now, normally, I know this isn't a book review podcast and I don't want to be too heavy-handed here, but, um, you know, normally I often recommend these books, you know, be read in my sources if people want to follow up the story. In this case, please don't buy this book. It's awful. It's it's absolutely awful. Um, everyone has got the capacity to make mistakes and I, and I appreciate that, you know, including myself. Um, but... They make, they they spend a lot of the time in the book saying that they want to you know clear up inaccuracies about this tale and and things like that, and then they make just a just huge errors throughout the book. They talk about the, 
the the house having bricked up windows and yeah that must mean that it was haunted but it, they don't obviously realize that there was a window tax at the time and people bricked up their windows to make the tax on their house cheaper and you know things like this and you think come on you should know this as authors of books right and there's a piece in it where they write an entire chapter about a mystery which isn't a mystery because basically it's a mystery to them because they attribute a piece of research on this case to Henry Sidgwick, Professor Henry Sidgwick. They put a picture of him and everything. And it's just so cringe because the research was actually carried out by his wife, Eleanor Sidgwick, and they should have known that. And the reason they got it wrong was because Eleanor Sidgwick at the time, like all people in the 19th century, all women in the 19th century, she signed her work and her writings, Mrs. Henry Sidgwick. So they've attributed it to Henry Sidgwick, which means that they can't have actually read her writing because if they'd have read her writing, they would have known that it was Eleanor. And I just find that it's just basic errors, but it also is removing it from Eleanor's credit, right? And it's given it to her husband, which is, a I don't know, it just feels a bit of a misogynistic thing to have done. I know that's probably not why they did that. They just did it because they didn't, they did it because they just didn't research properly, but it feels really wrong to me. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it just goes on and on. They they, they make just ginormous leaps in in um, logic and expect you to follow along, and it it's just an entire fiction. So, yeah, I spent two pound fifty on this book, and I I just this isn't a book review podcast, but I just don't think anyone else needs to waste their money on it, basically. <laughs> So, yeah, normally I would recommend, um, say, if you want to sort of follow up the story to, to, to read like one of the books that are in my sources. But in this case, I absolutely do not recommend you do that. Um, uh, instead, look up all the old sources that they're, they're all available online. They are some of them are quite hard to get. I, I, I will put them all on the Patreon um, for people to if they want to read them um, because they're all in the open you know, public domain because they're all hundreds of well, over 100 years old. So. They're all freely available. Um, but that would be what I recommend um, you do if, if you are interested in, in, in looking back on this case. Say, find all the, the contemporary sources because they're, they're much... Um, well, you'll gain everything that you would gain from reading that book except from a headache, which, uh, which is nice. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I feel a bit harsh, but it was just... It, it's just the worst type of paranormal writing. I think there is a piece in the book, and I, I'll give you a quick quote. It says... Um, when you're writing about the paranormal, you aren't writing about what you know. You're writing about what you don't know. Now, I appreciate that they're probably trying to be enigmatic there, but oh, it's just everything that's wrong with paranormal writing to me. Um, you're not writing about what you don't know. If you're writing about what you don't know, you should put your pen down and you should go and learn and then come back and write what you do know. That's my piece. I'll leave that there. Anyway, I'm sure I'm just soapboxing at this point, so I'll shut up. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, if you'd like to contact me, you can get in touch, contact at darkhistories.com. You can reach me uh, for, via various social media. All of the links are in the show notes and on the website, which is darkhistories.com. You'll also find uh, places you can support the show. Um, any sort of support is, is greatly appreciated, especially at the moment. I know everything's like really tough, isn't it? But... Uh, so yeah, uh, you know, but but if you can, that's great. But if not, no worries. This show's always going to be free. Anyway, uh, enough of me waffling. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks. So until then, sleep tight.